welcome you into another edition of Talk at Isles, the New York Islanders' official interview-based podcast. I am Isles radio color commentator Greg Picker, joined alongside by the team's director of digital, Corey Wright. This week, we go to a defenseman from the early aughts. Well, Greg, I think my Vancouver is showing because uh, we had Adrian Acoin on, and I think I asked just as many questions about playing for those mid-90s Canucks as the early aughts Islanders, but... A lot of really cool insights from Adrian Acoin, who was a very good defenseman in his day. You brought it up a few times. Guy averaged almost 30 minutes a night. So I think he said the last player in the NHL to use a wood stick, at least by his knowledge. So between that, uh, some Islander characters, some all-star stuff, Mika Kiprasov covered a lot of ground in this podcast. 1,108 games in his NHL career. Adrian also played for the Canucks, the Lightning, the Blackhawks, the Flames, Coyotes and the Blue Jackets. Time to take it away with Adrian Acoin. Running, looking to set up. Feeds Acoin. What time he scores? Islanders winning in overtime, five to four. We now welcome in Adrian Acoin to the Talking Isles podcast. And Adrian, we like to start back in, in youth hockey, if possible. And so you got to play in the 1987. Quebec Wee tournament, which is pretty much the best tournament you can find in hockey for 12-year-olds, right? What was that like, yeah. getting to play in that tourney? Uh, well, it was fun because I'm not sure how much you guys know about it, but it, there's there's kind of a buildup because you have to kind of, I don't know if you have to qualify or you have to get some kind of, you know, a lottery or whatever it is to get in the prior year. So our whole team knew that, you know, that for the full year that we we're building up to getting in that tournament, so our coaches did a really good job of kind of getting us all motivated for it and excited and, you know, everything about it, just the culture in Quebec. I'm from Ottawa, so it's not that far away. I grew up, you know, as a Franco, uh, Ontario player. So I spoke French my whole life, did all my school in French. So that was, that was made a little easier, but I think most kids would tell you the coolest part about the tournament was actually just billeting with families. You know, the parents stay in the hotel all together. It's almost like a week vacation for them. And uh, not only do you get great hockey, but you just get great activities and super, super amenities just with, you know, I think we went sledding. Some of us went skiing, you know, obviously the carnivals at the same time. So it was really, really fun. You know, I think considering you're in Ontario and there's all the great OHL teams there and most guys really do go that OHL route. You know, how'd you find yourself going to uh, BU and not the junior route? Yeah, it was kind of interesting. So the team that I grew up, playing for the Gloucester Rangers, you know, back then, AAA really didn't exist. It was a double-A team. I believe we had about nine guys who went pro from that team. We won provincial championships in uh, Wee major and then Bantam major, so a 12-year-old, or a, back then it was 13 years old and 15 years old. Um, it was kind of crazy because we beat most of the Toronto teams, which was kind of unheard of. And uh, a bunch of us got drafted in the OHL. I would say it was kind of funny how... Uh, me and two of my best buddies on that team, well, actually three of my best buddies on that team, the four of us all kind of looked at it. Two of us got drafted to the 67s. My buddy, Sasha Gilbo, he went to uh, the camp. I decided to not even go just because my junior coach at the time was playing for the Nepean Raiders. He was very big on the NCAA. And he was actually really good friends with Brian Kilray, who's a longtime famous coach for the 67s. But they obviously had difference of opinions on what would help kids out in the long run. And uh, my coach, Jeff McLean, would actually take kids from other teams as well as our junior team and drive them down to Clarkson and St. Lawrence just to give them the experience of what college could be like. So obviously he gave us the look at that. And 
after kind of sitting with my dad and trying to figure it out, I thought college probably would be a better, probably just a better fit for me, I guess. And uh, my three buddies, my three really good buddies ended up doing the same. My one buddy, all three of these guys were in my wedding party. My one buddy, Steve Thornton, he went to BU with me. We were actually roommates. He runs the Belfast Giants in the British Elite League now. My other buddy, Sasha Gilbo, who I just mentioned, he ended up going to Ohio State. And then my other friend, Burke Murphy, drafted by the Flames, ended up going to St. Lawrence. And, you know, kind of like you said, it was not the norm. I think some people thought we were a little odd for doing that, but it pretty much worked out really well for all of us. Now, I'm a BU guy, and we've had a few different BU guys on the podcast, and Sean Pates, Freddie Myers. So this might be a little personal compared to uh, the rest of the questions, but what was it like playing for Jack Parker? Well, I, you know, I've said this on many interviews. He was like a father figure to me, even more so than a coach. You know, coming from Ottawa, I know, you know, I guess Ottawa technically is a major city. But being young and, let's say, naive, me and my roommate Stevie moved down there. and The two Canadian crazy Canadian kids rooming together. Sometimes we were, we were caught off guard by a lot of stuff going on, you know, in a big city like that. And uh, he really took me under his wing, you know, and like I said, especially off the ice, there was lots of uh, opportunity to get in trouble and to have fun. And he was always very understanding. And obviously the hockey, you know, spoke for itself. BU's been, you know, top ranked program for obviously decades. So it was, it was a really good fit for me. I know I only played one year, but it had nothing to do with the team or the coaching or anything. It just kind of ended up uh, going that way. So you get drafted 92 to the Vancouver Canucks, but uh, you spent a couple of years playing for the Canadian national team. And in 1994, that was still when amateurs represented their country. And obviously we're back to that now, but 98 was the first time they went to the NHLers. But in 92, 93 and 93, 94, you pretty pretty much spent almost that entire time playing for the national team. I, I assume that's just building up to the 94 Olympics. So what was that selection process like in those two years of what I assume were kind of barnstorming type of playing? Yeah, well, it was, uh, you know, definitely a different process to, you know, picking the teams back then because there was a full-time national team. So what had happened is the summer after my first year at BU, I got invited to a world junior camp and. You know, I, I think in all honesty, I was kind of a throw in because I believe I might have been the only college kid invited to that camp. So I think it was almost like throwing the NCAA a bone. Obviously, Paul Correa was already there, but he hadn't even been to college yet. He was still playing in the BCHL. So I ended up showing well in that camp. And uh, Paul Henry, who has been a scout for numerous teams, was the director of player personnel for the Canadian men's team at the time. And during that tournament, he asked if I'd be interested in leaving BU to just come and play a few tournaments. And back then, it was common for some college kids to go play in like the Spangler and the Asbestia and the World Championships and whatnot. And by the end of the World Junior Camp, he asked if I wanted to play full-time that year prior to the Olympics and just tour Europe and kind of do a build-up to, to the Olympic year with no guarantees or anything. And I ended up making it the next year and playing in the Olympics. So it worked out really well. You know, like you say, the amateur thing for a lot of those guys, that was their Stanley Cup. So it was, it was really exciting. I mean, I'm just the 94 Olympics. I see some of the names on that team. And I want to say, is that that's that culminated with the Forsberg, right? Because I'm seeing yep. Corey Hirsch in that. So, yep. Yep. but but just what are some memories of going around Europe? Because, I mean, I don't want to speak for the rest of the podcast here, but if someone offered me a chance to go and just hang, not hang out in Europe, but go work in Europe for a year yeah. in a hockey capacity, that that yeah. sounds like a really great opportunity. Well, you know, it's, it's, if you think back, this is obviously pre-internet, um, pre-cell phone, pre-everything. I don't think most guys really thought of touring Europe as this is going to be awesome. 
I think I kind of did, you know, my dad was in the air force and he'd travel to Europe a bit. And I traveled quite a bit throughout North America as a kid, whether it be moving or just because we like to travel. So I thought it was a really cool opportunity where I think some people, to be honest, it was a last ditch effort to maybe try to go pro or they already played a little bit of pro and they were trying to use it as a, you know, a bridge to get back into it or for a few guys because they'd already been over there and they knew how great it was. So as a 19 year old touring Europe for, you know, two weeks at a time, I thought it was the experience of a lifetime. Um, you know, sometimes I wish I was a little more in tune with how good it was, but I definitely enjoyed myself on and off the ice with my teammates and definitely some crazy memories of just the different countries, the different people we met, you know, even the hockey experiences. And I, I, I really, truly am glad that I did it. And it, like I said, it kind of fell on my lap being a little naive to the situation. What was your favorite city or country you visited? So we, we pretty much hit every European country that had hockey at the time. One of the coolest experiences, we actually went and played two weeks in Japan. So the Japanese Federation was trying to really promote hockey. I think it was getting ready for Nagano Olympics. And uh, we went and played two games in the South, two games in the Central, two games in the North. And, you know, very different culture, you know, riding the bullet train, you know, being on airplanes where people were still smoking, just the, the, the hustle and bustle of Tokyo. Um, and then some smaller towns, you know, we went to Hiroshima, we went to the site of the museum and the bombing. So we really did a lot of really cool stuff. And then on the European side, then my first game ever was in Northern Italy. So that was pretty amazing. And the band was there with the drums and the scarves and the yelling and the screaming. And it was, it was really an overwhelming experience. And we actually lost that game. And I believe it was the first time Team Canada had ever lost to Italy and <laughs> since the beginning of hockey. So it's something not to be super proud of, but uh, it was definitely a learning experience. Well, after that, you start to break into the Canucks organization. I see you got one game here in the 94-95 season. So arriving just after the Canucks went on that run all the way to game seven of the final and as a Vancouver native, if my timeline matches up, you would have played that first game at the Pacific Coliseum because Rogers Arena, then GM Place, was not open then. Would that be correct? Yes. Well, the first game actually was on the road in San Jose. Okay. So, and a funny story about that. So after my year, so, so I signed with the Canucks right after the Olympics. I finished the year in Hamilton. That was their farm team at the time. The next year was the lockout. So all of us young guys didn't even go to training camp. We went right to Syracuse. The, move, the team moved to Syracuse. It was the first year Syracuse at hockey, pro hockey, after decades of, of no hockey. So it was actually a great time in Syracuse because we could be losing 5 nothing, and the fans would still be there clapping and cheering. So it was, it was a real good hockey experience. Um, so that year ended, me and a couple other of my Syracuse teammates went to try out for the world championship team in Europe. It was the same coach, Tom Rennie, that I had. I didn't end up making the team. Came back to Ottawa, my hometown, left my gear in Syracuse. I was home for about two weeks. I get a call from Vancouver saying, we're calling you up. And I thought it was a joke. I had to drive to Syracuse, get my gear, get on a plane, fly to San Jose. I'd never met anybody on that team before because I'd never even been to training camp or anything. Played in that game, ended up scoring. I'd love to tell everybody that I went coast to coast and went far down, but I was a slap shot about four feet wide off some guy's butt in the net. I still laugh because it was Arters Urbe who I scored on, and I played, ended up playing with him in Vancouver, which was uh, great to bug him about. But yeah, so then I came back and played, uh, I believe, four playoff games, and we were in the Pacific Coliseum then, which was which was awesome. Those, you know, the old buildings as as crazy as the amenities 
were not good, it was still really fun playing in those buildings. Yeah, the Pacific Coliseum, I've never felt like it gave me Nassau Coliseum vibes. If, I think it was more probably akin to Rexall Place in Edmonton, or I guess it would have been the yeah. Northlands Coliseum, yeah. just because of that high roof compared yeah. to Nassau Coliseum. But those mid to late 90s Canucks teams, even if you're not a Canucks fan, and you know I grew up in the area around this time, you look at some of the names, Alex McGilney, Pavel Bure, Trevor Linden, I mean, Yerky Lume may be a little bit deeper for an, a deeper cut yep. for an Islander fan, but what was it like going in with some of the personalities on that team? Because, you know, McGillney, Burray, Linden, those were some pretty legit stars in the mid-90s. Yeah, well, you, you know, it is kind of sad because when you think of the names that we played or that I played with there, it is a little depressing that we definitely underachieved a little bit because we were not making the playoffs at the end of those years there. But, you know, obviously I get there and Pavel, that was right when he was coming off the hot playoffs from 94 and then McGillney comes who I would I've argued before he might have been the best all-around player that I've ever played with you know and I right after I got called up they traded for Marcus Naslin who's the top player we just had so much skill Trevor was the captain and uh you know maybe Islander fans don't know Yurke but he's definitely definitely one of the best European defensemen I've ever played with and probably the nicest European guy I've ever played with he was just so welcoming and just a great guy and a solid hockey player. So we uh, we had a lot of fun, and a lot of times it was just a matter of making a clean breakout pass and watching those guys go. I mean, I bet you 80% of my assists were a breakout up to Pavel Burry or Alexander McGillney. It was pretty impressive. And at the tail end of your Vancouver career, you would have played with a rookie, Daniel and Henrik Sedin. So what was it like seeing those guys when they were fresh over in North America? Yeah, those guys were, were impressive um, in the fact that you know, being drafted so high, they actually waited a year where everyone wanted them to come. And their dad was really, you know, their family, very solid family. And they wanted to finish their education, get everything done. Um, and when they came over, they struggled like, uh, like a lot of young guys do. And um, you, you could just tell though, their competitiveness and the drive and just the, the way they played together, it was going to happen. And it was just a matter of when. And I've told a lot of people when they, they asked me more, my later years, like who is the hardest player to play against? And I would say the Sedins. You know, because you really had no idea where they were going, how they were going to do it. They would find time and space. They would just spin you around in circles. And ironically, or I guess not ironically, is that's how we kind of coach kids nowadays. If we're trying to, you got to move the puck and then move, and then you got to play off someone's back and you got to go find good space. And I honestly think that they revolutionized the game before people even knew it. All right. I just want to rip off a few more names here. I mean, this is really taking me back, but, you know, obviously, Gino Ojek is one, Trent Klatt, Ed Jovanovski, Matthias Olin, and then even looking down at the goalies towards the end, I think you would have played with them both in Vancouver and on Long Island, so you might have an idea of where this is going, but Garth Snow, back yeah. when he was rocking the Orca you know, for yeah. the Vancouver Canucks, and yeah. Greg and I know Garth pretty well, and he's a really good chirper, but any good memories uh, from your time playing with Snowy, whether it was in Vancouver or on the island? Yeah, well, Snowy and I hit it off right away. You know, our wives got along, we got along. Um, he's definitely very sarcastic and very chirpy for sure. And I find a way to hang out with those guys quite a bit. Maybe because I laugh at all their jokes, I'm not sure. But we we got along great. And I tell everybody, in a weird way, he was one of my favorite teammates because I always had the feeling that he would sell his own mother to win any game. There was no one that competed harder than him. You know, it was a time, too, when goalies kind of would take a back seat, you know, because obviously they're never wearing a letter on their jersey or whatnot. But uh, he was definitely always a leader. And uh, truthfully, we would sit 
in our hotel rooms late at nights after games on the road, get a case of beer. And we would talk about different transactions we would make all the time. And I, I said this probably back in the late nineties that he was going to be a general manager of a team at some point. So happened a little sooner than both of us probably imagined, but uh, you know, honestly, I, I know he took a lot of heat, but I actually think he really did a great job setting the Islanders up for where they are even now. Well, he signs with the Islanders in the summer of 2001. You spent a little time in Tampa yeah. after you get traded there from Vancouver. But then in the summer of 2001, I think it was the day before the draft, yeah. you get traded to the Islanders. And any other offseason, that is probably going to be the most noteworthy deal. But you get overshadowed a little bit because the next day, Lexi Ashton goes to the Islanders, the following day, Michael Pekka. But did you see what that team was building even before you got to training camp and how exciting everything was going to be? Yeah, well, it was it was obviously a little crazy right around the trade deadline in Tampa. So I got traded a little bit before the trade deadline. And I remember their GM and Tortorella was a coach. And they basically said, we only have three untouchables on the team. And I think it was Vinny LeCavalier and uh, Javi Bullen just got traded there. And I think I was the third. So, all right. So I go into the offseason thinking, all right, look, you know, I'm going to get in shape. I know Tortorella was a stickler for fitness, which I, I always come into shape. So I... I thought it was going to be a perfect fit. And I actually sat around with Tortorella at the end of the season a couple of times, talked about the next year. And he was super positive and loved having me there. So it came as a shock. So Rick Dudley called me the day before the draft and said he'd made a trade and that I was involved. And he never even told me who it was for at the time because I was, I think I was still in shock. I went from, I believe, the 30th ranked team to the 31st ranked team at the time. So it was a little bit of a, a shock to the system, but then, you know, okay. So then Pekka, you actually get traded there. Snowy gives me a call and I still really didn't know where I would fit in because I'd actually come off a couple down years in Vancouver. I got through some injuries and just wasn't playing well. And I was obviously coming back with Tampa and feeling pretty good, but it kind of started slow on the Island, at least for a game. <laughs> Kevin Haller was there. Our first, I don't know if it was our first game, but one of the first games we were in Tampa, I believe. And he had this nagging groin injury, which he ended up retiring. And I probably only played, I don't even think I played that many minutes. And when he ended up being scratched or whatever, sitting out the next few games, and my minutes started to grow and started to grow. And I, you know, but it started off where I didn't really know where I fit in. I have it right here. You played 15 minutes and 51 seconds game one. Yeah. By game three, you were up to 25 minutes and 59 seconds. And then that was still below your average when things yeah. finished up that year. It was pretty often you were playing 30 minutes a night, which now is pretty much unheard of. But back then, guys would rely on, on a number one defenseman to play those kind of minutes. I guess fitness, when you went into that that offseason where fitness was your your number one thing, that's what allowed you to, to accomplish that? Yeah, well, I think obviously the game was different. It wasn't as fast. Um, there was a lot of clutch and grab. So you could, you could tie guys up anywhere and, I'm not going to say conserve your energy, but definitely not expend as much energy chasing around and skating. You know, it's funny you mentioned Gar Snow because I think he had a little hand in that because he'd played with Laviolette on the on the U.S. Olympic team against us. Um, so he'd kind of filled them in, and, you know, saying what kind of player I was because Lavi didn't really know me that well. And uh, so that's kind of what started it off. But yeah, um, I think most teams back then, you really had a top four heavy decor and that was normal for guys to play in their mid to high 20s um, just by the nature of the game um, so it wasn't that uncommon well you talked about getting traded you know from the 30th team to the 31st and pretty much your entire 
time in the NHL to that point, the Islanders were kind of in those, you know, darker days. So I would imagine probably thinking half empty Nassau Coliseum, the Marriott across the parking lot. And, you know, how long did it take you, I guess, when you got to Long Island that it really kind of switched for and you're like, oh, this place is really nice. And hey, this team that's been struggling for the past six years, like we might actually have something pretty special here. Yeah, well, we um, we went there right away before the, um, before the season even started looking for a place that's, you know, crazy. All my time in Vancouver, we just rented condos the whole time. And now we just had our first child. So we're like, okay, we better start thinking about buying a place. So we found Garden City, which um, we still keep in touch with quite a few neighbors there. And uh, it just seemed like a real good fit. I mean, the rink was pretty close. The Nassau Coliseum wasn't ending spectacular, but, you know, truth be told, there aren't, weren't that many rinks that were killer back then. Yeah, you know, obviously... When uh, we left the Pacific Coliseum, it was a GM place at the time. It was a pretty nice rink, but it, even back then, those rinks don't even compare to what the amenities players have now. But it's funny, you did mention the Marriott, and that was the one thing, right? Walking across the parking lot and sleep, like just as a visiting team, and then the visiting locker room in the Nassau Coliseum was just the dump, and it was cold, and it was dark. And so, yeah, so a lot of that was going through my mind. But we had a younger team. I'd already played with Pekka in Vancouver, so I knew him well. And you guys, you just had great, great guys like, you know, obviously Steve Webb, Eric Cairns, Mark Parrish, and then Batesy was new there. You know, on the back end, you had probably the most, let's say, the, the least well-known stud I've ever played, even though we knew him, was Kenny Johnson, right? He was so underrated. You know, you had Hammerlick. Like, it was a really good team. And then Osgood came, and Snowy and him were great together. And we just managed, we were almost like the misfits, right? We just, even when we didn't win, we still played hard. We had fun. We were just not a normal team or an easy team to play against. And like I said, there was a bunch of guys on that team that just just found a way to have fun and make it enjoyable. You talk about the difference between arenas then and now, and I think practice facilities take that to another level. I'm sure you haven't gotten the chance to see what the Islanders have as a practice facility now, state-of-the-art, but when you were there, it was Islanders Iceworks. And that was a little bit different than uh, what the guys are seeing now. So just take us back into a beautiful, cold Islanders Iceworks. So I was blessed in Vancouver in my early few years to have Brett Hedekin as a roommate. He taught me about like training and, you know, even though the nice thing about going to college back in those days, you used to work out. A lot of the junior teams did not. So I'd already started on the fitness thing, but going from Vancouver to Tampa then to the island, and I, you know, would like to work out after practice. The Islanders had a trailer behind Syosset. And there was, I think, I don't even know if there was a bike in there. There might have been one of those multi-gyms, like a universal gym, maybe some rusty dumbbells. And I was like, okay, how is this going to work? And then it started to clean up. They started revamping a little bit. You know, they redid it. And so the workout was in the back corner. Obviously, I went there years later. All of a sudden, they had sliding doors. It was like so technological now um and i did see their new facility when i went and did an alumni game last year which or a year ago which was which was amazing you know i'm happy that with the new ownership and everything they're really kind of getting what they deserve which is awesome well you said you were you know married and had a kid when you came to long island so i assume that you did not have any roommates at home but when you were on the road with the islanders uh, who was your road roommate any good stories there uh, well, Eric Cairns, well, I actually roomed with a few guys. I, you know, it's funny, every team I played on, I don't know, 
as you know, most sports, you have little cliques of guys together, whatever. I was kind of always one of those guys who would just kind of bounce around with everyone. I didn't mind the European guys. I didn't mind the French guys. Didn't mind, you know, whatever. Forward, defense, goalies, no big deal to me. But the one who I ended up having for the most time was Eric Cairns. And he was just getting married at the time. So he needed to learn how to be a married guy. Not in a bad way. He was just like, I don't know what I'm doing. This is all new to me. And he was, he was like the one he, I would have the remote. I would be the one to say when we're getting up. I would be the one when it was time to go to bed. I would decide where we would eat. And uh, he loved it. And we still have a pretty good relationship. He was uh, obviously a great teammate. You know, most of those tough guys, like the way he played, they were born to like basically look after their teammates. And I'm absolutely thrilled that he's doing all the development side there because he was always such a talented player. And his talent always got overshadowed. Well, his talent and his knowledge of the game always got overshadowed because his fists were so freaking good because he would just you know, take care of the business uh, pretty, pretty handily, but uh, he's still one of my good buddies. Speaking of Eric Cairns, he's still talked about on Long Island, not just because of the player development side, but because of what he accomplished in the O2 playoffs against the Maple Leafs, which was one of the most physical series that anybody can ever be a part of. And looking at that series, and unfortunately you guys didn't win it, but still create a lot of memories for Islander fans. And I'm sure for you guys in the locker room as well, as we talk about time on ice a game that ended in regulation, you played 37 minutes and 42 seconds out of 60 minutes. I still don't know how that is possible, though you explained a little bit with the, the clutch and grab before. But just that series as a whole, and you had seven points in seven games. Just what did that mean in your entire career? With a break shot on the board, and he waits and waits. Now the pass, a good pass it was. retired now living here in Chicago and most of my neighbors are let's call them peripheral hockey fans because the Blackhawks have won the cups in the semi-recent years whatever but one of the questions I get asked the most is did I ever win a cup the answer is no um they're like well how far did you get and the furthest I ever got was with Coyotes we made it to conference finals but the best and most talked about playoff hockey I always talk about is that one first round against Toronto and it's kind of crazy because we didn't even win it and yet it was the most fun, most memorable round of hockey or even games of hockey that I've played. It was ruthless, which was okay by everyone's standards. Like it was so much fun. You had to show up. You got dragged into the fight. Obviously we had enough toughness on our team that we didn't have to worry about anything. It was high scoring, high hitting, you know, obviously because it was Toronto, as you guys know, most teams have at least one or two, sometimes up to 10 guys from Toronto back then. So when you go play those games, it's almost like, you know, people, it's almost a little more hectic than being at home, but it was just, it was incredible. Every, every game was exciting, a little bit of drama involved, but it was, it was so much fun. And that's the kind of stuff that, you know, when guys retire that they really miss. You know, just from the rest of your time with the Islanders, are there any other more undercover characters like if you look back at some of those teams uh you know trent hunter's a guy that we greg and i got to see in edmonton this year but we don't hear from a whole lot everyone's still looking for oleg kavasha you know perhaps jason blake like is there an undercover character that maybe fans don't think about because they're always talking about the impact that you yashin pekka osgood had on those teams yeah well i mean probably a little more recognizable name would be someone like marius tchaikovsky right the polish prince he's one that 
even as players we still talk about he was almost like a like a paparazzi kardashian type character right he was he was all about the better and the cooler things in life and he was still so good at hockey and so it was it was fun to have guys like that around you know you had guys like brad isbister who just would show up they could skate they could fight they could do it. him and jason weaver were buddies from calgary and these two guys were as big as grizzly bears and you know they were they were just outstanding players like our depth was so good i think the one year our third line might have been jason blake dave scatcher and jason weimer and on some teams that could be a first line you know not let's say all-star first line material but these guys would score they'd fight they'd hit they would do everything and nobody wanted to play against them and that was our that's how deep we were so we had a we had a lot of guys like that and you know even guys who were there a lot longer were like Radic Martinick, who was fun. He would show up in better shape than everybody every year. And it would just mind boggle us how we do these testing things. And he would just never get tired and he would just get better and better. So it was, there was a lot of really good guys in those years. 2004, you are selected to the all-star game and skills competition. You end up winning the hardest shot. So just uh, what were the memories like going to participate in an all-star game and, and obviously winning part of the competition? Definitely one of the highlights of my career. I don't like to, I don't think most people like to do any of the individual stuff so much for sure, but you know, especially in the hockey world, but it was a very cool experience, not only for me, but for my family, just rubbing shoulders with those guys. You know, nowadays the all-star game is turned into a little bit of a, it's very flashy for sure, but it's also a little political and you don't really have the perennial all-stars anymore. Obviously you could have a Crosby and Ovechkin, whatever, but Back then, it was, you know, like Messier was in there, Yager was in there, Niedermeyer, you know, it was Lidstrom, um, you know, the Rob Blakes of the world, the guys who probably played a dozen of them. It was, and they would treat everyone the same. And I kind of went in there with, I guess, you know, just being a little kind of gun shy a little bit because I, you know, it was my first all, first and only all-star game. And I walked in the room and just <laughs> prior it might've been even the last game or the game. I can't remember which game, but there was a game against Philly leading up to it where I got into it with Jeremy Roenick and we were getting at him. I wanted to kill him and he wanted to kill me and nothing happened. And we were going after each other. And I remember thinking, okay, and I, I used to chirp a lot of guys in the ice and I said some stuff that he didn't take too well. And I remember walking to the locker room and he was the first guy I saw. And I thought, how is this going to go over? And he gave me a big hug and he was like, dude, you are so hard to play against. This is, awesome congrats like there's nothing better than this and and we became good friends to this day and I think most of the guys are like that those top top guys are used to dealing with every the competitiveness all the adversity and and just grinding away and then when you you don't get into a situation like that you're like best buds and it was it was very cool I'm looking back at the photos of you from that it looks like you're using a wood stick then too so I think what 102 on the gun as we head to playoff time Adrian O'Coin, New York Islanders, last shooter. Oh! 102-2, he has tied Sore. A shoot-off. So Sore, Kubina, and O'Coin have all bested 100 for the East. And 99 on his second. I'll tell you something, Alvin Guinness won it last year with his old, old Nelly, the old wooden stick. I was looking at Adrian O'Coin's stick in the locker room. It's an all-wood twig. Question for you, though. A lot of times now when guys are kind of waiting to find out their skills assignment, when the NHL was doing some of these, you know, pass into a little net across the ice, there's guys that are like, I don't want to do that. Like, whatever this is going to be, it's going to be tough. Are there nerves before you're stepping into the hardest shot? Or is that just like, I'm doing this in a game anyway. Like, this is just business as usual. 
Uh, well, I would have to say the hardest shot is definitely the easiest one to compete in. You know, I guess because the guys who do it normally know they have a hard shot, so there's definitely a little bit of confidence in there. You know, even if you do a shootout or something, you're like, oh, I don't want to lose the puck. I don't want to embarrass myself. The passing, like you said, you could mess so many things up. I think this fastest skating would have been definitely a little hair-raising, but, uh, you know, I actually... I, if I remember right, I think they asked me to do that one, but I had had groin issues. So I'm like, I do not want to do anything like that. That would be horrible. But it, like I said, it was fun. And even talking to the guys who had been there and most of the, the staff for the NHL who sets it up, they're like, this is a weekend for you guys to enjoy it. We don't want stress. We don't want it to be, you know, a burden on you. They know it's like the rest of the league is going on a you know four or five day vacation. So they definitely did it the right way. Since Corey mentioned it with the wood stick, did you play with the wood stick throughout your entire career? Or did you switch over towards the end? I you must have been one of the last guys. I, I believe I technically was the last player, um, as far as I know. And I switched over. So what happened? I was using Coho, CCM, Reebok. They're all the same company. And it's a different name brand as they changed. So I believe it was CCM at the end. And they changed the factory where they were making their shafts. So the, it all of a sudden I got these sticks that were a little heavier and a little softer for some reason. I couldn't figure it out. And they told me that. And I only had like three good ones left. And when I broke my third one, it was right before a game. We were in Anaheim. So in pregame skate, I used, they had already tried to get me out of the wood sticks for honestly, probably a decade, right? They're like, okay, you're not making us any money by using these. So I had my own pattern. I had a Shane Doan pattern. I had a Robert Lang pattern. And I had a Peter Mueller pattern that I kept switching around in warm up because for some reason, my wood stick pattern was not even some, when you put it on a one piece, it just didn't work the same. So first period, I think I used a Robert Lang. Second period, I used a Shane Doan pattern. I ended up scoring. So my stick to this day, even though I don't get six made for anymore. So it was that second last year, I believe right at the end of the second year in Phoenix, I basically switched and then my last year in Columbus I kept and I it was a basically a Shane Doan hockey stick that I used so you play the three years with the Islanders culminates 2004 and then the lockout occurs and you end up signing in Sweden to play with Modo and some of the names on that team the yeah. Sedins Peter Forsberg Marcus Naslin and then some Islander connections as well with Matthias Weinhandel and Matthias Demander and Tommy Salo even though you didn't play with him on the island was still yep. obviously yep. an Islanders goalie what was your experience like in Sweden and, and did your time traveling through Europe have an influence on where you signed when the lockout occurred? Uh, yes. I mean, there, realistically, there was probably only a few places that I would have went. Uh, the biggest reason I went there is because at the time, Marcus Naslin was one of my best buddies. So I stayed with him for a little bit and then ended up getting my own place. Obviously, I knew the Sedins already. I knew... Tamander already, I knew Winehandle already, you know, and then you had like the Tommy Salos and our captain at the time, he'd already played in the NHL. We had a kid who played in Jersey already in the NHL. We had Forsberg, who I played against my whole career there. It was, it was almost like an NHL. A lot of us weren't also, well, we're coming up as All-Stars, whatever it was. And the craziest part about that is how unsuccessful we were over there. You know, you'd think it then you look at the roster and you're like, you guys should have walked away with it. But people at the time didn't realize how good Swedish players are. Now we kind of get that, you know, with you see Team Sweden at the Olympics and the World Championships and whatnot. And even their lower end players are so much, or back then, should I say, were so much more skilled 
than some of our top guys. They would have skill sessions every day or almost every day of practice where I'll never forget, I'm skating around and we would have the kids, like the junior kids practice sometimes. So you'd have these 17, 18 year olds. And I remember, and I'll butcher a Swedish accent, but the kid looked at me, he's like, excuse me, Mr. O'Coin. And I'm like, yeah, he's like, do you not play in the NHL? I'm like, yeah. He goes, why is your skill no good? And because we never really had, you know, I mean, either in the NHL, you were a skilled guy or you weren't. It's not like you would work on stuff all the time. And now, of course, the game has completely changed. Everybody has skill. And compared to those guys, like I said, you could have taken the worst player that's ever played in moto and they had 10 times more skill than I had. So I'd explained to them like, okay, there's more to it when you play in the NHL, but whatever. It was kind of a funny anecdote. Again, just some more names there. I mean, Marcus Nass on the West Coast Express days were really, I mean, he was an absolute star for a while. And obviously the Sedins, you know, went on to win a scoring title each. But, you know, looking ahead to your time in Calgary, the name that just jumps off the page for me is Mika Kiprasov. Because yep. I feel like if you weren't watching, you know, a lot of Calgary Flames games at the time, this is, you know, just before everything was so widely available, it feels like on, you know, YouTube and Game Center and all that kind of stuff. I mean, he was for real. Like I, when I think of goalies that just absolutely torched the Canucks during that time period, like it's him, he's playing 75 games a year, which also no one does anymore. Can you just share anything about, you know, Kipper? Cause I feel like if you weren't, if you didn't see it, it's hard to really appreciate how good he was. I can honestly say, I think he was the most talented goalie that I've ever played with. He was like a rubber band. He always seemed to find a way, you know, obviously you're playing in the NHL, so goals are going to go in on you. But almost every shot that was savable, he was definitely going to save it. And he was funny because away from the rink, he wasn't super hockey oriented at all, you know. So when he would show up, all of a sudden it was just time to play, and he would just he would be lights out. I the amount of games that he would steal was was obnoxious. And you know, I was lucky throughout my career because I have played with some absolute like Hall of Fame goalies between like Abby Bull and and. You know, it doesn't mean their whole careers are like that, but like Mike Smith in Phoenix, I had, oh God, who was our other Russian goal in Phoenix, the funny guy. Um, oh, Brzezgalov. Brzezgalov. Yeah. You know, and when I started, it was like Kirk McLean. It was like, I've always been on these teams that have just had, and I actually played with Bobrovsky in Columbus. Like, it's just like, I've had these amazing goalies that just, you know, they, I they joke about it. I always take the goalies out for dinner because they've extended my career so much because they've, they've made me a lot of money. You end up your career with 1,108 games, but you hit 1,000 when you're a member of the Coyotes, and I know you have a Game 1,000 jersey sitting behind you. So how special was that, and, and what did that accomplishment mean to you when you hit 1,000 games in the NHL? It definitely meant more than I thought it would be. You know, we I don't think any kid wants to make the NHL saying, I'm going to play 1,000 games. Then all of a sudden, it just kind of creeps up on you. And for me, it was even a little... A little hairier, I think, because I was dealing with some groin issues. And the way most teams do it is they plan the celebration, you know, a good week or so after the actual thousands game. But I had missed a few games in a row where the game we played Chicago in Arizona was actually my thousandth game. You don't want to play scared. You don't want to play protective of not getting hurt. But there was like definitely a little few games where I was on edge, you know, maintaining stuff. And, uh, you know, I had people flying from everywhere. You know, obviously I'd played on a few teams. So we had friends from, you know, Phoenix come in, or well, obviously we were in Phoenix, but people from Chicago, people from New York, people from Canada. It was a really, really fun. It's almost like having, you know, a massive wedding anniversary or a big birthday when you get to, you know, 
rekindle your friendships with a lot of people because the cool thing about being a professional athlete, I tell everybody this is it's a great way to stay in touch with people. Even if I met like a football player, a baseball player that I kind of liked, you know, I would stay in touch with them just by watching them, see how they're playing. And it just makes for a great, easy conversation, a great way to, to reconnect. Well, Adrian, before I let you go, I mean, you were got to be here a part of the Islanders 50th anniversary that just wrapped up. And, you know, it's a guy that played in the Coliseum and saw really the transitions even just started Iceworks to being at UBS Arena, playing in that alumni game at Northwell. Just, you know, you know, what do you think about where the Islanders were 20 years ago when you got really introduced to the organization to where they are now? And just, you know, what stood out to you about that 50th anniversary being able to celebrate it here as one of the alumni? Well, the coolest thing for me playing with the Islanders is I actually grew up an Islander fan because they were winning their cups when I really started growing into hockey. So getting to meet Clark Gillies and Bobby Nation were two of my absolute heroes. My favorite accomplishment with the Islanders um, was winning the Bobby Nation Award the one year, you know, for work ethic and whatnot, just because, like I said, I still remember him scoring the goal and everything. But there was such a good core of fans already, you know, and you know, I've been around pro sports long enough to know that if you're not winning, it's pretty easy to jump on and off the wagon quite a bit. But even our first year when things just started, it's amazing how, like I said, get traded there. We're 31st ranked team. And within a few weeks of the beginning of the season, we had already had all the fans. It seemed, it seemed like anyways, we had all the fans back. And that's one of the luxuries of playing at Nassau Coliseum, not a big building where you could really hear the fans. And it's, it's a, it was a cool, really cool building to play in. And now with the new rink, like I said, the new ownership and not that the old ownership was bad, but it seems like these guys are all in, you know, I like what they're doing. It's just, they're a fun team to watch and I'm, I'm super happy that they're doing well. Thank you so much, Adrian, for joining us. Really special to get to hear those memories of Long Island and, and really elsewhere, not just in North America, but the world. Yeah, thanks, guys. Well, thank you again for joining us on another edition of Talk at Isles. Please make sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you might listen. You can follow us on Twitter. I am at Greg Picker here. And I am at Rightsway. You can follow all the latest info about the team on Twitter at NY Islanders and stay up to date on UBS Arena at ubsarena.com. A big thank you to our producer, Rachel Lucia, and to WRAQ at Hofstra University. And we'll see you next time on Talking Isles.